Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, and uh, I was thinking about Christmas moving as we get closer, and I wanted to do a little, kind of a short little Christmas series. I called it Reframing Christmas. And I'm doing that because Christmas is a really visual holiday. Uh, during the Christmas season, we're bombarded with images, images that uh, have kind of over time morphed, kind of these major symbols or icons of Christmas have become almost like sacred cultural icons within North America. You've got stockings hung by fire, beautifully wrapped presents, family sat around a table for a holiday meal, meal, children tobogganing down a snowy hillside. And over time what happens is these images get so fused with our associations, uh, with our Christmas associations, that to think of Christmas is to think of these images, and to think of these images is to think of Christmas. And so Christmas becomes, over time, largely defined by these very idyllic, soft images of hope and joy and family and friendships and peace. And that's a good thing, right? And it is. But it also kind of isn't. It's kind of a yes and no to that is is the way that I would respond. Because while these images speak really powerfully to us on, on a personal level and on a level of nostalgia, these images can actually interfere with us coming into a richer and more vibrant understanding of the first Christmas. And these images can run a bit of interference in our imagination and in our heart such that we don't really grasp the nature and the power and the glory of Christmas or its significance to our lives, to to the broader community and world that we're a part of. For many people, whether or not you're a believer or not, whether or not you consider yourself religious, Christmas is probably the least offensive and softest story in the Bible. Everyone likes babies, so the idea that God became a baby and these idyllic images of a little baby lying in a manger. You might not believe it, but you're kind of like, oh, it's cute. Like, there's lots in the Bible that I wouldn't take time to read or think about, but that's kind of a neat, nostalgic thing. Even if you're going to dismiss it as mythic or made up somehow, it's kind of a, just a nice story. No one really braces for Christmas. We, we, we brace for the credit card bills after Christmas. That's January. But leading up to Christmas, it's not really a season that you brace for. It's not like, let's say, Lent in the liturgical calendar where you're taking these 40 days to really uh, participate in self-denial in such a way that you're forced to kind of wake up to the things of God. Christmas is kind of this easy, soft movement into uh, warm fuzziness. Culturally speaking, Christmas is about joy and laughter and friends and and good feelings. But here's the problem with that, and this is the the thesis that I want to kind of unpack with every week and, and culminating on Christmas Eve, is that the nicer we make Christmas, the nicer our, our iconography and our symbols and our pictures that we connect with Christmas, the harder it is, the more distance we get from the actual glory of Christmas. The nicer we make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the power of God. The nicer we make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the grace of God, the nicer we make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the love of God. Because as we're going to discover, the first Christmas was glorious, not because it was pretty and nice and idyllic and sweet and soft. It was glorious because on so many levels, it was rough, it was dark, it was dangerous, it was very unsettling, it was surprising, it was very subversive. 
I was thinking about, I've just got Mark, the gospel of Mark rumbling around in my head, right? But I just thought, yeah, like Christmas is an insurrection. The first Christmas was a tremendous overthrow to the status quo, and it had a real edge to it. But we lose that edge when you fast forward 2,000 years and then layer North American nostalgia on this holiday. Today I'm going to be introducing you to some new images, which I hope will kind of begin to take root in your Christmas imagination. And through these images, I want us to discover and explore together the context of the very first Christmas. Now, there's a word of warning here. These images that you're going to be exposed to uh, starting today are, um, are pretty provocative. They're, they're pretty powerful. And I think they will forever reframe how you understand Christmas and how you apply Christmas to your life, not just at Christmas, but 365 days a year. So, word of warning, if you'd like to keep Christmas, culturally speaking, kind of undefiled and unpolluted by the biblical text, this is going to be a rough few weeks for you. Because I think these images and what I'm going to show you and what I want to put before us um, are really going to make it impossible for you to ever move through the Christmas season the same way again. Our scripture today is really, you could call it kind of the dark side of Christmas. It's this really dark, difficult story that comes up. Uh, kind of after Jesus is born. It's, it's found in Matthew 2, verses 1 to 18. This is probably known to most people, even if you're not a church attender. You know the, kind of the story a little bit about Herod and the wise men and Herod trying to kill boys and kill Jesus. But I want to read it in its entirety. This takes place about two years after Jesus has been born. Magi from the east have come to visit this new king, to pay homage to him, to honor him. And so the story picks up when these magi come to King Herod, who was installed by Rome as king of the Jews, so the Jews could feel like they had a king and feel like they were independent, but they were basically still under the puppet control of Rome. And these magi come to Herod, uh, wanting to locate where this new king is. So Matthew 2, verses 1 to 18. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one born Where's the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for this child. As soon as you find him, report it to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they, have heard, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star which they had seen, sorry, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take this child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed 
until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod had realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is the text in scripture that we learn the most about this person, Herod. And he's not talked about too much outside of Matthew's gospel. But that's not because he was insignificant in the first century. It's because he was enormously significant. Um, The fingerprints of Herod, who's now called Herod the Great, there's other Herods, his sons you read about in scripture, when Jesus was uh, a grown man. But the fingerprints of Herod the Great are all over the New Testament world, the, the context that uh, the New Testament was, um, was written in. Herod was known as Herod the Great. That's what historians call Herod because every, everything this guy did was, was great in the sense of scale. He was a go bigger, go home person. He was a huge visionary. He did things to the max. It was all or nothing with Herod. When he set it to accomplish something, nothing and no one stood in his way. Once he decided to do something, it was, it was going to happen. He was going to will it into existence. Herod was incredibly wealthy. Some scholars estimate that he was personally worth a thousand times the gross domestic product of Israel at the time. It was his personal worth. And he wanted to leverage his wealth to secure for himself, to make a name for himself, and secure for himself the title, the greatest king of the Jews Israel had ever, had ever seen. And so starting when he was, I think, 20, when he was installed as governor of Galilee, it was his first installation, he started on a series of massive building projects. And when he became king of the Jews, those got ramped up into high gear. The first one I want to show you is from a town called Caesarea. This is where Caesarea is located in Israel. Caesarea didn't even exist before Herod. Herod built the whole thing. Like the whole, it was just nothing. It was just um, land right on the sea edge. And he said, as, as a way to honor Julius Caesar, because remember, he's under Rome's control and he wants to keep Rome happy. I'm going to create a, a whole town, a city. And he does a huge building project. The whole thing gets completed in 13 years. A, building something in a year today is quite fast. Maybe not a home, but like a, a large complex and structure. Building an entire city in the ancient world in 13 years is almost uh, inconceivable. But this guy made it happen. Herod built the largest seaport in the world in Caesarea. It was 40 acres. It didn't exist. You can Google on, or you can YouTube uh, Herod's seaport in Caesarea. It is amazing the technology that was used to create that uh, man-made harbor. It had a lighthouse. It was 40 acres. He used it to solidify his economic stranglehold on the spice trade along that coastal edge, uh, it was called the Via Maris. It was kind of the major highway. His family basically owned all of the spice trade and owned all the pieces. And he created this seaport to help um, accelerate uh, trade and and create even more money for himself. That is the largest amphitheater that was ever created in the world. I mean, you you imagine sitting in that and watching a theatrical play and looking onto the (laughs) 
the sunset. I mean, that is a stunning. If that's all Caesar would have or all uh, Herod would have built, that would have been stunning enough. That was just part of the building project in Caesarea. In Jerusalem, Herod finished rebuilding the Jewish temple, which was destroyed by Babylon, but he used marble and gold for a lot of the elements of it. The building was about 15 stories high. It was the the largest, if we go to the next slide, um, so here in Jerusalem, he rebuilds the temple. That's an artistic rendering. This is a model. He pours a huge amount of energy into the whole city, but he kind of finishes up the temple, creates the largest man-made religious enclosure in the known world. On the western side of the city, he builds a complex that has reception halls, apartments, fountains, gardens, baths, hot and warm water baths, fortress for his personal guards. He builds another Greek theater and a hippodrome. He paves the streets. He even installed sewers in, um, in much of, of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem. Masada is a really amazing uh, fortress that Herod built out in the wilderness. This gives you a sense of the scale of it. Masada is built basically on top of a mountain. It was impregnable. It was siege-proof. This is where Herod would go. This was one of his fortresses that he had if there was any kind of war in the land and he had to retreat somewhere and be safe, not just for a few days or weeks, but potentially a few years. Archaeologists have discovered that there was enough cistern, water, and food supply here to keep Herod, his entire family, court nobles, and his personal guard alive for 10 years. He's going to be fine if war ever comes to his doorstep. One of the things you learn about Herod, if you study him, is he was very paranoid about keeping power. From the time that he got installed as a governor in Galilee, there were all these insurrections and revolts by Jewish people trying to say, we don't want to live under the Romans. We want to live under God. We want to live under God's word. And Herod was very ruthless and brutal in dealing with these insurrectionists. What he would do is he made a lot of fortresses for himself because he was constantly paranoid at people of, of rumors and uh, threats of, that might potentially surface from all over. Um, the Cleopatra, who lived during the time of Herod, when she had her little tryst with Mark Anthony, um, Cleopatra hated Herod. So um, he was very paranoid that she would send Egyptian forces up from the south. So he was kind of in this constant building mode, but it was fueled by a tremendous amount of insecurity and fear on his part. Everything that he built had at its agenda trying to p- procure more favor from Rome so that they would back him in case anyone tried to take what he felt was his, or he created these f- amazing fortresses for himself so that he couldn't be uh, threatened militarily by any existing military of the day. In Masada, it, you don't get a sense of it. It's, it's hard for us to know what it would have looked like when it was uh, fully constructed, uh, not lying in ruins. There were hot and cold baths, there were mosaic floors, there were swimming pools, there were large storehouses. Um, Again, cisterns holding millions of gallons of water. This wasn't just like a a safe room where you just go in and have your basic supplies. This was palatial. This was opulent. And the last building project of Herod's that I want to show you that I think is super fascinating is called the Herodian. And this was a, a palace fortress that was built on top of a hill. If you just want to go back to the last slide there, Marvin, um, that hill, this is super crazy to imagine, that hill didn't exist before Herod. Um, Over the course of three years, 
he had a huge amount of land transferred to that site. No one's really exactly sure how he did it, but he did it, and he made a mountain, and on top of that mountain, he built the Herodian. And so the rumor has it there was this catchphrase, and you can see where this maybe lines up. You can kind of search your scriptures to see where this connects to the New Testament, where people talked about Herod because we'll find out in a moment he wasn't beloved because of all this building. He he was really seen as a, a really terrible guy. But people did say of Herod, they said, Herod is not a good ruler, but Herod can move mountains. Because he literally did. I mean, this guy is powerful. I might not like him. I don't like his policies. But holy, I mean, this guy is powerful beyond our imagination almost. If you want something to happen, Herod gives an edict and it happens. So I want to show you a picture of the Herodian. Herodian, a beautiful, beautiful spot. Herod spent some summers here. And what are some of the features here? You've got a garden here. You've got a reception hall. You've got Roman baths. You've got a ton of apartments. The lower palace included a pool, a colonnade garden, 600-foot-long terrace. Uh, the building is more than 400 feet long. The Herodian at the time was the third largest place, a palace in the ancient world third largest in the ancient world. So again, we might think when you look at all these building projects, oh, here's, here's some more pictures just to give you a scale of it. Um, even in its ruins, you, you just get a sense of how massive this thing was. How, what an undertaking of engineering uh, this would have been. So you have Herod, this master builder who is incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, incredibly influential. But he wasn't beloved by the people. He was actually feared and loathed by almost every Jewish person and, and some people within Rome because Herod was a tyrant. Herod was capital B bully. Um, just a few stories to draw this out a little bit. When Herod first be- comes into power, he made his 17-year-old brother-in-law, Aristobulus III, high priest because Aristobulus was super popular with the people and Herod was so insecure, he said... I don't want this guy becoming so popular that the people kind of revolt and say, we want Aristobulus to be king of the Jews because you're a jerk. He's awesome, so he should get in there. So he made him high priest, even though he didn't come from the right lines. He wasn't even Jewish. or Sorry, he didn't come from the uh, priestly uh, tribe of Levi. But he installs him as high priest. Then a year later, Aristobulus is such a popular high priest, Herod's still so insecure that something's going to happen, so he has this dinner party, and then in the heat of the summer, he's like, hey, go into my colonnades and my pools and relax and just chill. And he has some of his personal guards drown Aristobulus to make it look like an accident. Um, in 29 BC, about eight years after he comes into power, Josephus writes that Herod had this passionate and jealous relationship with, his, with, his, um, with one of his wives. He ends up having eight or nine wives, I think. But one of his wives, Miriam, and she learns that Herod, in a fit of rage one time, plans to murder her. And so she stops sleeping with him. And then he gets angry at that. So he accuses her of adultery. And then her sister, he, Herod bullies Miriam's sister to testify against her. And um, Herod's wife's mother also testifies against Miriam. Even though Miriam, there's no adultery involved. She just stopped sleeping with Herod because of his detestable behavior and his threats to kill her. And what happened was uh, Herod leveraged, 
and you're like, why would Miriam's mom testify against her? Well, Miriam's mom was also on Herod's hit list. She knew that Herod was also gunning for her. So she made a pact with him saying, if I testify about my daughter and you kill her, you'll let me go. And he's like, no problem. So she testifies. Now then what happens, Miriam gets killed. Herod's like, good, that's out of the way. Um, uh, the, the mom, Alexandra, she says, oh, you know what? I'm insurrecting Herod because Herod's not fit to rule. He's insane. Look at this madman. Look at this guy that kills his wives. I want to pronounce myself queen of the Jews. And Josephus writes that that was kind of a strategic mistake on Alexandra's part because Herod just has her summarily executed with no trial. He's just like, uh, no, that wasn't part of our deal. Had no problem getting rid of people who stood in his way. Anytime there were rumors of any kind of an insurrection, real or imagined, Herod's answer is murder and death. No one's going to interfere with this guy's plans. He tortured servants until they gave names. He would just torture people and saying, I'm sure people want after me. And they're like, we don't know of anything. We don't know of it. They would just torture, torture, torture. They would eventually, just out of desperation, say names. He'd go find those people and kill them or torture them. He was just a madman. The older he gets, the more he descended into mad, uh, madness. Herod is this guy who builds for his own glory and fame to make a name for himself, but he builds out of fear and paranoia and intimidation and and bloodthirst and death-dealing behavior. And he was bitter to the very end. By the end of his life, he's almost universally reviled within anything approximating a God-fearing Jewish um, Judaism of the first century. And the rumor has it that when he lay dying from, and he had a, a whole constellation of diseases, syphilis they think he had like a liver disease it was really terrible he was like literally rotting from the inside out Uh, one of the servants is is supposed to have said to him when you die no one will mourn and herod took that to heart and he realized that's actually probably true so he commanded his chief military commander and he said when i die i want you to go to all the surrounding areas and i want you to gather the beloved and the nobility from those towns. I want you to bring them to the amphitheater uh, in Jerusalem. And on the day that I die, I want you to kill them all. Because if people won't mourn for me, they will mourn. They will mourn. Now I say that because sometimes you'll hear, whether it's in Time Magazine or on the TV, or you'll hear things like uh, this slaughter of the innocents, Matthew chapter 2, that we just read about Herod, uh, killing these, these uh, young boys. There's no extra biblical evidence that that ever happened. That is true. It's on, that's the only um, criminal activity that Herod does that's in the Bible that isn't in what's called extra biblical. It doesn't show up in any other historical records. Josephus doesn't talk about it. And the leap that's then made is a lot of people say, see, the Christmas story, it was made up. It was later doctored. It was edited. And Herod was made to be made to, uh, they doctored the story so that Herod became kind of like this new pharaoh who wanted to kill all the baby boys back in Egypt. And so it was all just this, it was, ma- it was a made up story. It was a mythologi- mythologization, is that the right word, of, um, of Herod and his rule. The, the problem with that viewpoint is that it doesn't actually, it's not grounded in historical fact. In this sense, Herod sentencing to death, Bethlehem's 300 people, surrounding area, maybe you want to really stretch it to 1,000 people. How many kids are aged two and under? Most scholars would say maybe 10 to 15, maybe, depending on survival rates. 
Herod sentencing 10 to 15 kids to die out in the middle of nowhere, not even close. I mean, just not even close to noteworthy from a historical perspective for someone like Josephus. He does way more, uh, in, the, in, the, in the grand scheme of certainly a Roman point of view, uh, monstrous things. And when you look at Herod's life, is it really likely that the early church sometime, somewhere 100 years in the future would have to make up a story like this to make Herod look bad? No, they're simply presenting one of the stories, one of many, which shows this Herod, this king of the Jews, this false king, to be a monster who was willing to interfere and really even try and thwart God. He calls the chief priests and the scribes and says, this is a prophecy this king's going to be born. The prophecy must be legit. Where, where does the Bible say he's supposed to be born? And they're like, well, in Bethlehem. He's like, okay. I want to go worship him, find the child. We're going there to kill it. So he believes the prophecy is true, that there is a king, which would mean he believes in some sense that God is orchestrating history. But he actually has the ego to think, I can actually grind that to a halt too, because God didn't ask my permission. So this is an egomaniac. Now it's really tempting when you read this story to kind of just out of uh, offhand vilify Herod. He's just a, a monstrous ruler he leverages all of his power for himself. He's a deplorable character. You can condemn him out of hand. But I don't think the Bible lets us off the hook that easily. Herod is obviously the bad guy of the Christmas story. But I believe that we're also meant to read him and understand him as that stubborn, Christ-resistant, self-serving part of our own hearts that, that live in every single human being because of sin. When you read this story, the question that should come to mind is where, where do I, what parts of Herod do I see in myself? What parts of his motivation, what parts of, of his ambition do I actually see in large or small ways percolating or having taken root in my own life? We're all a little more like Herod than we'd probably like to admit. We're not bloodthirsty murderers. People might look at us and we might be um, well thought of by people in this church, in this community. But all of us, by sinful disposition, we all want to be king or queens of our own lives. We all want to rule and reign. We all want to be in the seat of power. Even if that seat of power simply means, at the end of the day, my will is the bottom line in terms of what gets done or what doesn't get done, what I do, what I don't do, what I take part in, what I don't take part in. Even for those of us who have turned our lives over to Christ, we aren't immune to these sinful desires. We're all resisting Jesus' reign and rule in some part of our life. I mean, I know I am. There are parts of my life that it's much easier for me to say, Jesus, absolutely, take the throne of my life and I want you to be in control here. And then when other things come up, it's like, ooh, yeah, uh, no or not yet. You can be a consultant in that area. I just don't want you to be the king. I'm the king. You can be the consultant. And that's, that's Herod. That, that's that little voice of Herod that speaks into all of our hearts. 
I give Jesus charge over these areas, but not these ones. I want Jesus to have authority and dominion over my children's lives, but not my finances. I want Jesus to reign when it comes to my prosperity and hope for my future, but I don't want him to reign in terms of my body and how I express it and how I use it, whether to serve other people or in terms of my sexuality. See, every time we read about Herod, we have to see that we're actually being challenged to consider where are we playing the role of Herod in our own lives? Where are we building for our own name and for our own fame and for our own glory? We have a lot of wealth individually and cumulatively as a community. Are we leveraging that wealth to make a name for ourselves, to make our lives easier, to secure greater security, greater control, greater comfort for ourselves? Or are we leveraging our wealth and our skills and our talents? Are we building in a way that exalts God, in a way that establishes and builds his kingdom? See, we don't often read the Christmas story through the lens of repentance. We tend to just focus on the themes of love and hope and grace. But the story of Herod should remind us that every journey to Christmas should always involve reflecting on the fact that, as one author said, Jesus is coming for his throne, and I need to step down from it. Because he's the king, I am not. He is Jesus, he is the Lord. I am not Jesus, I am not the Lord. I want to talk about reframing Christmas in light of some of these images, these massive building projects that everyone knew and saw. And I want to talk about hope in the shadow of empire. Herod was this terrible ruler who was a part of this terrible empire called Rome. And by the time Jesus is born, Herod has become this living embodiment that symbolizes everything that is corrupt and greedy and selfish and oppressive and ego-driven about this Roman empire. He becomes the living embodiment of these values. When you think about those images, maybe it's a little bit more helpful to see now how difficult it would have been for someone in the first century even though, remember, after 400 years of God being silent, this, this, this slow boil to, we want God's kingdom to come. We want God to break in. We want God to do something. We want God to establish his kingdom and overthrow the kingdoms of this world. Can you imagine how difficult that would have been to even try and conceive? How would that even happen, though? How is that possible? What hope is there for any kind of change? Like really, like real change. In the face of in what looked like intractable evil and dominant powers that seemed untouchable, unassailable, un- unseigeable. With Herod and power on the throne, what king could possibly overthrow the might of Rome? There's an artist's rendering of the Herodian um, and the really important thing to understand about the Herodian is it was built three miles away from Bethlehem. So this is an artistic rendering of if you were in Bethlehem, this is what the Herodian would look like. You lived in its shadow. Going to Jerusalem, living in Bethlehem, you had all these monuments that made it very clear, symbolically, wherever you went, Herod's in charge, Rome's in charge, do what you're told, everything will be fine. Go off script and you'll be dealt with with increasing degrees of severity, depending on how much you actually want to test the powers. So you imagine someone living in Bethlehem, seeing that Herodian every day and thinking, oh, one day there's hope that that this is all going to be overthrown and God's kingdom is going to come. Really? 
It just seems fanciful at best and delusional at worst to have a hope like that. What king could possibly come and overthrow the existing king of the Jews? Forget about Rome, just the existing one. What king could threaten Herod? Imagine how militarily powerful he would have to be to do that. On a scale, he would, he, would have, he would have to have access to weapons of warfare that the world had never known up to that point. And God's response to this longing for something new, this longing for change, this longing for hope in the midst of great darkness is to send a king, and he sends a king in a way that is very small, it's very quiet. It almost, un- almost goes unnoticed by most of the people living in the area. He sends this king as a little baby. And this baby that is literally born in the shadow of the Herodian, in the shadow of Herod's empire, and all that it symbolized. Imagine how difficult it would have been for some people to get excited, even if they wanted to believe that this was a long-foretold mo- messiah, what is, this, how, what is this baby going to do? What, what dent is this baby possibly going to make? I just, I just don't see how it, how it could happen. And let me ask you, what are the Herods that are in your life? What are, the, what are the power structures? What are the people? What are the situations that you look at and say, I don't know how there's any hope that this would not be there. I don't know how there's any hope against this kind of power. It might be a person, it might be a situation for you, it might be an addiction, it might be a whole constellation of circumstances that you look at and you feel like you're living in the shadow of it and you just say, it is what it is. I mean, there's no point in having false hope because I've lived long enough, I've experienced loss long enough, I've experienced pain long enough, I've experienced suffering long enough, I've experienced oppression long enough, I, I've tried to change, change isn't possible. What are those for you? Because Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, is an event that says you are never without hope. And there actually is no worldly power, even the power of your own sin, that if you give Jesus your throne, the throne of your life and heart can overthrow it. The light is stronger than the darkness. And a lot of people live without hope. A lot of people live in the circumstances of darkness and sin and evil in their relationships. They face certain socioeconomic factors and they look at them and they seem insurmountable. But Christmas offers real hope to people living in darkness because Christmas confronts the lie that there is no hope for deeper substantial change. God became one of us. God came as a king and he established a kingdom. But it wasn't a kingdom like all the kingdoms of this world. It looked very different. It was a kingdom that will overthrow the powers of this world and it will overthrow the powers of darkness in your finances, in your marriage, in your job, in your heart if you dethrone yourself and if you receive Jesus as king and lord. And so this contrast between Bethlehem and the Herodian should always remind us that while the powers and rulers of this world look like they are powerful beyond measure, they are no match for this King Jesus and for his kingdom. They're just no match. Do you see what I mean when I say things like 
the nicer you make Christmas, the harder it is to feel the power of God. The softer our image, when you understand the imagery that would have invaded people's first century sensitivities and then bring the hope to Christmas to bear on it, the power of God becomes something that is just has a much greater oomph to it. It's not just a nice thing. It's a revolutionary thing. It's, ca- it's offering capital H hope. Christmas is the power of God revealed in a way that I would argue it's not revealed in almost any other way in Scripture. Herod's official title when he was installed by Rome was King of the Jews. Herod was a king who built these unrivaled monuments to his own glory and fame. Herod built through intimidation and murder and paranoia and fear. And despite that, because of his building projects, history remembers him and Rome remembered him as Herod the Great. Herod the Great. He was great. And he's great even though today anything that was connected to his kingdom lies in ruin. I mean, they're, they're set pieces for museum tours. During his crucifixion, Jesus was given the mocking title of King of the Jews. They put that on the cross as a way to say, look at your king. He wanted to be king of the Jews. Here he is. Here's your king enthroned with a crown of thorns. Jesus was a king who never, he never built any monument. There's not even a standing stone where you can go and say, oh, Jesus built this thing here. But Jesus built something. He built the kingdom of God. And Jesus built that kingdom, not through murder or out of paranoia or through intimidation or force or coercion, but he built it through grace and forgiveness and redemptive love and redemptive hope. And his kingdom was established not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but by shedding his blood for his enemies. That's a very different kind of king. That's a very different kind of kingdom. And his kingdom, unlike Herod's, still exists, still continues to grow. And the Old Testament says, and of his kingdom, it shall know no end. His is the kingdom, which is unstoppable. You know, there's a few times in the gospel, mostly in Luke, where people look at Jesus, they see what he did, they listen to his teachings, and they call his deeds great. They, they, they say, wow, that was a great teaching, or these great signs and wonders. But Jesus the great never caught on. Neither Rome nor Christianity has ever adopted the title the great for Jesus. Do you know Why? because it wasn't a title that conveyed his glory enough. He wasn't just great. The title that stuck was Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the true King, the true King of the Jews, the true ruler, and not just the true King of the Jews, but the true King of Kings, the true Lord. Is he your king? Is he your king? And if he's not, Christmas, the Christmas season is a great time to bend the knee to Jesus and to transition Jesus from being a consultant in your life 
or to being part of just that cultural constellation of icons and symbols that roughly and vaguely and softly communicate Christmas niceness, taking Jesus out of that and planting him on the throne of your life and saying, you are the true king. I want to build for your kingdom. I want to build for your glory. Use me in that building project in whatever way you see fit. Is he your king? If he is this morning, then please join me and join Justin and the team and come let us adore him because he is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, as we sing to you, may the full weight of who you are and the hope that you offer and the new life that you invite us into, may it just hit us in new ways, God. And as we move towards Christmas, may we, may you reveal yourself in successively deeper, more transformational ways, God. Reveal your glory to us, God. We adore you. Help us not to just sing these words, but to live these words as we go out into our families, workplaces, the city of Nelson, our community this week. In your name we ask this. Amen.